So from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 10, which you'll find in your zines, and then we'll go into the Luke reading after that. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. He said, Go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous, make their ears dull and close their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. We skip on 800 years to Luke chapter 5, which tells just after Jesus had been uh, tempted in the, the desert and then had preached his first sermon on a bit from Isaiah as well and then started healing people, started uh, casting out demons from people and we arrive on the journey with Jesus at Luke chapter 5 verses 1 to 39. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding round him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and he said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything and followed him. 
while Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their illnesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. One day, Jesus was teaching and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal those who were ill. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has all authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They said to him, well, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but Yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, he will fast. they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment 
and patches it on an old one, well, otherwise they will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wine skins, otherwise the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wine skins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wine skins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for they say, the old is better. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You'll get to meet uh, Mike in a little while. Finishing up as a missionary in Spain, and uh, we're going to interview him at the end of the service, and so look forward to that. Does that work for you? Um, <coughs> I chose both those readings because of a similarity. They're, they're 700 years apart, 7th century BC and, of course, 1st century AD. Uh, but in, in it, Isaiah meets us, the Lord and says, I'm, I'm a sinful person, and Peter does the same when he sees the miracle from Jesus, and you'll see that link in a few moments' time. But in both the Isaiah reading and indeed the whole of the Luke one, and it's a long reading, by the way, but pretty powerful. In that whole Luke reading, you'll see God really through Jesus Christ or Jesus Christ touching and transforming lives, and I hope you'll see that in a few moments' time. Do you want to pray? Yes or no? Yes. Caleb wants to pray, and because Caleb wants to pray, we're all going to pray. I'm going to, I'm going to get my... Uh, all organized i really am shall we pray let me pray using the words of isaiah the prophet father i pray that you'll make our hearts soft that you'll save us from having calloused hearts cynical hearts hard hearts open our ears that we might hear this morning Open our eyes that we might see the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray that this afternoon we might understand with our hearts and indeed experience the miracle of turning and being healed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So many years ago, I was invited to a fundraiser in the city. Uh, it was for the Australian Stutterers Foundation. It was a fundraiser for people who help those who stutter. I was a student and the meal was free. At that meal, by the way, I got told by several people that I have a stutter. So apparently I have a stutter. Did you know that? There you go. I chose the wrong profession. Uh, of course, when I was told twice that I had a stutter, I thought to myself uh, of that proverb, you know, to a... Uh, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If you think I have a stutter, please tell me later. During the fundraiser, I began to perceive a problem, a conflict that existed in the room, namely that with every speech, there seemed to be an underlying debate, a, a line drawn, and speakers at the fundraiser seemed to be on one side or the other of the debate. Now, they were trying to raise money, so everyone was polite. But I could tell there was a debate in the room. I found out from the person who invited me, a speech pathologist, who told me I had a stutter. I'm not burned about that, by the way. I found out that there were two theories in the room about how to treat stutterers, and that those two theories were apparently incompatible. I never found out what the debate was, or the theories were, but everyone else in the room seemed to know. 
it's interesting that people who have the same goal, like they did in that room that day, often clash about how those goals can be achieved. Politics, for example, is the business of two or more groups in the same field or arena with broadly the same aim, but arguing about how to achieve that aim. That's what politics is. For example, I think Liberal and Labor in the House of Representatives, they broadly want a better Australia. They just fight about how to achieve a better Australia. And that's why you get politics in chess clubs and churches. Anywhere where people care about the way things should be, there'll be politics. Same, it would seem, with those who care for stutterers. When Jesus burst on the scene in Galilee, in Luke chapter 4, like we learnt last week, he began to clash with people who appeared to have the same aim that he had, but disagreed with how it could be achieved. The Pharisees and Jesus wanted God to change the world. At least that's what they said they wanted. They had a name for it. They called it the kingdom of God. The Pharisees, on one hand, said that the kingdom of God would come via attention to the Torah, observance of law. So it would come via effort to the obedient, attention to Scripture, our pursuit of God. And so the Pharisees naturally rewarded the good people. They wanted to affirm this sort of behavior in order for God to bring his kingdom on earth. Jesus, on the other hand, said that the kingdom of God is a gift by grace alone. And it would come via him alone. And it would come to the unworthy. Jesus said the kingdom of God is about his pursuit of you. And so he then ate with the bad people as opposed to the Pharisees who rewarded the good people. Now, like me, that evening at the Stutterer's Foundation, I didn't get it. And maybe in the room today, not everyone gets it here now, and they certainly didn't get it back then. At that dinner, I could see that there was a difference. I could feel the politics. But I didn't care too much. I'm not a speech pathologist. I thought, let them argue. And I hope someone gets helped in the process. Now, you might be here this evening with the same attitude that I had in that room that night. You've been invited by a friend. Maybe you're here because you want to get married here. I don't know the reason you're here. But you're wondering why it's all so important. And why Christians seem to argue. You know, so many, how many angels on the head of a pin? I don't care. And so maybe you'll leave tonight unmoved, in the same way that I left that dinner, unmoved. But you can't do that with God. And that's because He wants you. He wants all of you. You'll see that today as we look at the stories in Luke 5. This afternoon is the second in our Lent series in Luke's Gospel. We're tracing God's grace in the life of Jesus and seeing how it transforms lives. And we're seeing if grace might transform our life too. Luke before Easter, Galatians after Easter. Luke 5 was a long reading, but my primary text today is Luke 5 verse 31. Luke 5 verse 31 on page 9. I'm going to dip through this whole chapter, so you might want to, when I mention a verse... Have a look down and see if what I'm saying is from the Bible and not made up. Luke 5 verse 31, Jesus answered them, the Pharisees, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill, they need a doctor. 
but in the parallel statement, I've not come to call the righteous who are healthy, but rather sinners who are ill, and I've come to call sinners to repentance, transformation. It's an astounding verse, worth memorizing. Jesus identifies himself here as the great doctor, the divine doctor who sees sinners in his clinic for those who turn up. Now, medicine was very different in Jesus' day. I found that out on Facebook yesterday. That is, preventative medicine is a modern invention, I'm told, of the 19th century, and that didn't exist in Jesus' day. You went when you were sick. But even still, even today, who ends up at the doctor's office but those who admit they've got a problem or might have one sometime soon? And so you go to the doctor to prescribe something, to find some wisdom, some support. You go to the doctor so that she can chart a path to healing or even save your life in that moment. Imagine if a doctor was there in Kosamui. Is that how you say it? Never been there. Imagine if a doctor was there when uh, Shane Warne uh, started having his problems. But a doctor wasn't there. In the same way, Jesus frames up entrance into the kingdom of God. If you need healing, you'll turn up. We're encouraging you to read the whole of Luke in Lent. Last week I suggested that you read Luke and make a red cross every time you see someone who needs help, and there are dozens and dozens and dozens of examples of people needing relief. Today, if you're following the outline or writing notes on page 11, I've got two, a point and then a question. The point is, grace touches and transforms lives. And secondly, I want to ask, why do some resist? So firstly, grace touches, then transforms lives. There are four stories in chapter 5. All four stories make a similar point, namely that Jesus touches lives and then transforms them as well and in different ways. He has the authority of God and woven into those five stories of Jesus touching and transforming lives is resistance from good people, religious people who have a different idea about the kingdom of God. So the first story is in 5, 1 to 11 where Jesus transforms people vocationally. There are fishermen and they follow Jesus, and when they follow Jesus, they don't stop fishing, they just stop fishing for fish. And now they fish for people, they're on mission. So vocationally, these fishermen are transformed. You heard the story a moment ago, Jesus is using a boat, there are two boats there, Jesus used one of the boats by the Sea of Galilee as a natural amphitheater to teach the hundreds or thousands of people that are attracted to him, that have come to hear him. To make a teaching point, Jesus says to Simon Peter, take the other boat and go out into the water and fish some more. Now Simon is a fisherman. It's his profession. He knows what he's doing. Tom Wright in his commentary says he has hands like shovels. This guy knows what he's doing. And so he says in verse 5, Master, we've worked all night and haven't caught anything. Implication, there's no point in going out. But he says, because you say so, I'll let down the nets. Now that's a model of faith. You said it, I'm doing it. 
And so they do so because Jesus says so, and miracle, they catch more fish than they can handle, so they need more help, they need both boats and more men. Jesus, down in verse 10, he says to Simon Peter, from now on you will fish for people. And so verse 11, they pulled up their boats onto shore and they left everything and followed him. They just dropped it and followed. And they did so without knowing where he was going, what it would involve, or what would happen when they get there. They didn't even know where there is. Just an unqualified drop the nets, follow. I mean, if I did that to you today, you'd say, can we talk about what you're planning to do? You wouldn't do it. But here's the key to Simon Peter. It comes, this... Um, mode, this uh, approach to Jesus, out of an appropriate fear, a humility, a revelation of who in fact was in front of him, like Isaiah who saw the Lord high and lifted up, and with the revelation of who was in front of him, he said, away from me, I'm a man of unclean lips, I'm a sinner. And Peter does the same thing in verse 8, when Simon Peter saw this miracle, he fell at Jesus' knees and he said, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. He was open. He was touched on the inside and vocationally transformed. The second story, Jesus literally touches a beggar and transforms his life socially. Lepers have a dreadful skin disease, and so they're ostracized, even from family. This man has probably not been touched in years, and we all know how, touch, how important touch is. Like Simon Peter, he has a humility, but it's born out of poverty. In verse 12, he says, uh, or we read, when he saw Jesus, he fell on his, with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, no presumption, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left the man. He was cleansed that day on the outside in the way that I am cleansed on the inside. And that meant that his life was transformed socially. That's the meaning of go show yourself to the priest in verse 14, who can check him out and declare him clean, something Jesus had already done when he said, be clean. He was touched by the healing hand of Jesus, literally, but he was transformed in that he can rejoin society with his brothers and sisters again. And here's the key perhaps in this story is that Jesus would normally have been made unclean by the leper's touch. The uncleanness in the Jewish Torah goes from the unclean one to the clean one. But Jesus reverses the order. His cleanness, uh, his holiness uh, is a thing that uh, cleans up the leper. His healing grace is infectious. Jesus touches and transforms, thirdly, a man in verses 17 and 20, he transforms the man spiritually. Now he's paralyzed and he is healed, he gets up and walks, but he's also transformed spiritually. In the story, his four closest friends are desperate for him. You got any friends that you're desperate to help, you wish you could help, but you don't know how to help them? These four friends can see that their brother is ill, there's no wheelchairs, there's no 
support network. He's been carried around on a mat. They have a sense that Jesus is the divine doctor, but the house that Jesus is teaching in is full. So we're told in verse 19, they went up on the roof and they, they well, in another gospel, they dug a hole. And they lowered the man in the mat through the tiles in the middle of the crowd and right in front of Jesus, you know, with bits of uh, clay falling everywhere. Has water come into your home this week? Water has come into my home. In fact, Laurel was uh, asleep uh, one night when, boom, the waterlogged roof in our bedroom just fell, a huge amount of uh, plaster from the early 20th century. Did you know they put horsehair in plaster? I did not know this, but I do know now. Because of all the debris on the floor of our bedroom, which is cleaned up now and we're going to get help, but looking down at that debris, I can imagine all the debris in that room that Jesus was teaching in from the four friends desperate to get their friend to Jesus. They're digging a hole to get to Jesus. How desperate are you? They dig a hole. Now there's a kerfuffle with the Pharisees. We'll come back to that. The man gets up and walks at the word of Jesus in verse 25. Immediately he stood up in front of them. It's a miracle. He took what he'd been lying on and he went home praising God. He was touched and his life transformed. He now praises God. But you'll notice in verse 20, he's granted something bigger than the use of his legs. Now, if I didn't have the use of my legs, I would love to be granted the use of them. But Jesus gives this man something even bigger than that, something infinitely bigger, something spiritually transformative. He offers the man divine forgiveness. He declares it in verse 20. When Jesus saw the faith of the friends, he said to the disabled man in front of him, friend, your sins are forgiven, something he hadn't asked for. He is, of course, touched by the healing. He goes home praising God. But perhaps, presumably, he's transformed by the divine forgiveness. Four stories, touched and transformed. Jesus transforms Levi, the tax collector, divinely. Because Jesus is God, he's the holy God, and here he is sitting with the worst kind of person. Levi, in verse 27, is a tax collector, which means he collaborates with the Romans to collect tax for them, and he skims money off the top. He's a crook, and he's a bureaucratic crook as well, the worst kind of crook. Verse 27, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi, sitting in his tax booth. Follow me. Jesus said to him, and Levi got up, left everything, just like the disciples, the fishermen, and followed him. He joins the band. And indeed, at first, he welcomes Jesus into his home with a big party with all his sinner mates. Now, for what it's worth, the idea of getting up, leaving everything, and following without question, without risk assessment, without qualification without writing something down, without a contract, I believe that it mirrors the idea in the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament of following the Lord, namely that if there is no other greater being in the universe, there's no other God, and if you shall have no other God before me, then when God shows up and says, follow him, you simply follow him because you're not God. Any qualifying question puts you above him. And this sense of like, I don't know where you're going, but I'm in. 
has the sense of, I have God in front of me and I'm doing what Moses said we should do, the Yahweh, follow him. But the key here in this moment in the, tax, in the Pharisees' picket is that Jesus is eating with the wrong sort of people, tax collectors and sinners. So Levi then is touched by Jesus and transformed by the divine. I love what Stanley Harawash said about the disciples, and it's a, it's a significant quote. So if, you've, if you're not with me, it might be worth just coming back in with me. Listen closely, listen to this. He said, that the deaf, the mute, the blind, the poor, those rendered helpless in the face of suffering, recognize Jesus is not accidental. There's design in it. You'll see that all the way through Luke. The deaf, the mute, the blind, the poor. He writes, to be disabled does not make one a faithful follower of Christ. Oh no. But rather, it puts you in the vicinity of the kingdom. To be disabled is to be forced to have the time in Jesus' day to recognize that Jesus is the inauguration of a new time constituted by prayer. We call it the kingdom of God. And you'll see in Luke's gospel, people just desperate. Or maybe Tim Keller in New York City, put more, more simply, he says, some say that calling yourself a sinner is emotionally unhealthy, that it's psychologically unhealthy. Not so. It is emotionally unhealthy not to call yourself a sinner. To be able to say, I am capable of terrible things, but I am wholly loved, is the epitome of mental health. It is the gospel that gives us that. The gospel gives us the freedom to admit who we are when the information comes. To see where we need to change and to know ourselves. That's exactly what's happening with Isaiah in Isaiah 6. When the information comes, Isaiah says, I am a man of unclean lips. The same with Peter, the same with the friends, the same with Levi. Grace then touches and transforms lives. Secondly, why then do some resist? I don't understand why you would resist such love, such divine love. What about those who do not admit who they are when the information comes? Last week, I maintained that Jesus was a magnet, that he attracted people. And we've seen that this week in chapter 5, and you can see it in verse 26 in particular. We have seen remarkable things. In the Greek, it's paradoxical, unexpected things. But remember last week that a magnet attracts and repels at the same time. A friend of mine listened to the sermon on this week and he said, the word you're looking for is polarizing. I thought about that word and I thought the word currently means a person like Donald Trump who comes in in order to polarize. But Jesus is in fact polarizing, but not because he's come in in the same way, but rather his very being, people are attracted to him, and by his very being, people are saying, I don't want to touch him with a barge pole. In fact, I'd rather edit him out of my life. In fact, I'd prefer to see him crucified than to change my life. Gospel of Luke. So why then are some repelled, and perhaps more importantly, is that me? 
resistant, defensive. Why are some repelled? Well, first, if you follow in the outline, they just think it's preposterous. They think it's a joke, or worse than a joke, blasphemous. Do you think all of this is preposterous? Do you think it's all silly, all a bit disturbing? I've been thinking this week that blasphemy was a category that existed when we believed that there really was a God, an external one, uh, who really existed, and you could blaspheme that God by uh, crossing, crossing that God. But, in a, but with the rise of the modern self, and with Western individualism, and with the sense that I get to choose my own destiny and no one gets to tell me what to do, not even God, then I become the arbiter of my own will. I become sort of a small g God in my own world. And so blasphemy then becomes when someone crosses my will, when I get upset or offended because someone crosses my will. Do you find the word about Jesus blasphemous to yourself? as a self-determined creature. When Jesus saw, said to the paralyzed man on that mat, friend, your sins are forgiven, the Pharisees thought it was all preposterous, blasphemous towards the real God. You might not have noticed, verse 17, that the Pharisees and teachers of the law had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem in the south. They've come from everywhere. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, verse 21, began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, there's an irony in that. But Jesus picks their heart, like he did last week. Verse 22, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? And so he says, which is easier to say? I'm going to give you a little challenge, a riddle. Which is easier to say? A, your sins are forgiven. Or to say, B, get up and walk. Now, on one level, they're both just as easy to say. They're both four words. You can punch those words out of your lips. It's just hot air. On another level, they're both equally hard, saying, I can forgive sins. And what about the take up your mat and walk? What if he doesn't? I think the answer is this, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven since no one can verify that in the moment. They can just roll their eyes or call it blasphemy. So Jesus will do the apparently harder thing, the thing that's verifiable, to prove that he has the authority to forgive sins. That's what's going on in verse 24, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He does both, the hard and the easy thing, or the two easy things, or the two hard things. And the man takes up his mat, and he went home praising God, proving that Jesus is the Son of Man who forgives sins. Now the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they hate this. They like being in control, like we like being in control. I said to a Moore College lecturer many years ago, I said to him, what do you think the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were protecting when they opposed Jesus? You know, were they protecting the honor of God, or the importance of the temple, or the, the law of Moses? What honorable thing were they protecting? And the Moore College lecturer paused, thought about it, and said, 
their jobs. Like the Stutterer's Foundation, everyone thinks they have the best way, the correct way, and the Pharisees believe that about the kingdom of God. And so they've come out in force. Why? The answer is Jesus is a threat. Bishop Tom Wright says this, he says, Why should they gather like this to check out a young prophet who was doing and saying strange things? The answer is that their particular cause was the coming kingdom of God, the same one that Jesus had. And, he writes, if someone else appeared on the scene who seemed to talk about the same thing but is getting it all wrong, then they wanted to know about it. And part of the Torah is that forgiveness came through the temple. If this man wanted forgiveness, he needed to go through the correct channels. He needed to go to the temple. But Jesus skirts the entire religious system by saying, declaring from his own being, friend, your sins are forgiven. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Do you think Jesus is preposterous? That you know better? That's blasphemous to your own mind? It's easy to have a hard heart. I think people would become Christians, indeed followers of Jesus, if they dropped the cynicism. If they stopped holding up cynicism as a virtue. One of my favourite Lewis quotes in the abolition of man, goes like this. Listen closely. You cannot go on seeing through things forever. And many of you, by the way, can see through everything. You understand it all. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. It becomes nothing. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is not the same thing as to see. In other words, there's none so blind as the cynical. It's time to ask God for a soft heart. Why do some resist? Well, they are well. They're okay. So they miss out on God, tragically. The sick are thankful for the doctor, but the well, the healthy, don't need him or her. And the Pharisees believed that they were well. Their sense of self and their theology demanded it, much the same as modern Western culture. They believed that the world was changed by good men, good men who were encouraged to keep the Torah, the law. And so you didn't hang out with tax collectors and sinners. I hate to say it, but the phrase, the standard you walk past is the standard you accept. I hate to say it, but that phrase is the phrase of a Pharisee. Now, I know what the point of that phrase was, and I listened closely to the speech, and it's basically saying, if you see something that's wrong, stand up and say something. And I believe in that 100%. But listen closely. The standard you walk past is the standard you accept. Jesus doesn't just walk past the Pharisee, the tax collector and the sinner. He walks in and eats with them. That's why Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to transformation. Why do some resist? Well, thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, they're just committed to the status quo. They don't want things to change. And by the way, adults find things hard to change. 
are committed to the old ways. They thought people should be serious about God, so they criticized Jesus for not being serious enough, for eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus says, you know, I'm here now, and so it's a time of feasting. But there will come a time, verse 35, when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and in those days they will, be, will fast. And Jesus is talking there about his saving death on the cross. But then he told them this parable, which helps us now in verse 36. He says, no one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. You don't spend lots of money on a new piece of clothing to cut it up and patch an old garment. You don't do that. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment and the patch from the old will not match the one with the new. The Pharisees have old garment thinking. Not that there's anything wrong with a garment being old. I have lots of comfortable clothes. It was good thinking then, but it isn't what God is doing now. Jesus is doing something new. You can't take Jesus and patch him on to a corrupt system. If I can put it this way, Jesus is a whole new garment that you don't want to cut up. Is it any wonder things got political? Their reading of the Torah, which puts good people at the center and discouraged being with the wrong sort, Jesus challenged that whole system. And so you'll need a whole new thing, which Jesus says is like new wine that is poured out into new wineskins. He says in verse 37, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins the wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, he says, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for they tend to say the old is better. In the end, Jesus is the new wine bursting the old ways of the religious Pharisees. They think they're correct, but Jesus is correct. And the Pharisees are on the wrong side of history. The ones who tend to say the old is better resist Jesus' work in their life. The Stutterers Foundation that night, they were trying to work out something important, no doubt. And no wonder they had politics. Working with stutterers is an important job. But this, what Jesus is talking about, the kingdom of God, this is what life is about. Sinners like me finding forgiveness. Ill people like me finding healing broken and divided world needing peace this is what the poor get and the rich resent this is why the sick get healed and the well get hardened we'll need something in our hearts to be dislodged to be dislodged like the stone that was rolled over the tomb of Jesus grace infuriates some but to those who are ill it is their salvation. Let's pray. Father, we come now and find our hope in Jesus. He is all he said he'd be. We believe in this moment that grace is overflowing from Saviour's heart that we are to rest here in Christ in his wondrous peace. Father, save us from believing that we're the healthy ones and other people are the ill ones. Instead, help us to come to Christ and be 
transformed by him. We pray this in his name. Amen.